at some point in your career as an SLP, you will likely collaborate with an occupational therapist. What is their role in pediatric therapy and how can they help your practice? Today, I'm joined by OT Brittany Ferry to talk about strategies that you can use in therapy, the significance of health literacy and teletherapy. Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA-certified speech-language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow us on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today, I'm joined by Brittany Ferry, an occupational therapist, psychiatric rehab practitioner, and telehealth specialist. She is the owner and founder of Simplicity of Health, LLC, a company that provides holistic rehab, health writing, and community education services to individuals across the lifespan. Hi, Brittany. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on today. Before we get started, let's paint a picture for the listeners. Can you tell us about who you are, what you do today, and how you got there? Yeah, definitely. I've been an occupational therapist for a little over four years. Um, most of my early clinical experiences were in behavioral health, uh, cognitive rehab, and things of the like. Um, about a year and a half ago, I, I kind of felt the push to leave the clinic, um, you know, due to personal symptoms of burnout and um, I just really felt like I wasn't giving the patients, uh, you know, what they needed or deserved. Um, so I kind of felt the push to jump over to the non-clinical side and and do a little bit more, um, you know, community work and and things like that, which led me to develop my business, um, which originally started off as health writing and and now it's expanded to uh, quite a few services, uh, one of which is teletherapy at this point. That's great. So because a lot of our listeners are speech language pathologists, I was hoping you could identify the role of an occupational therapist and um, kind of define that a little bit more, especially in regards to pediatric therapy. Yeah, of course. Um, I like to give the, I guess, the quick and dirty explanation of OT as um, kind of experts at task analysis. Um, so, you know, no matter what population, uh, age range or, or setting we're in um, and, you know, the people we're working with, I think we're really good at taking tasks that are either important to patients or necessary for patients' function um, and kind of breaking it down to figure out where the deficits really lie. Okay, you know, we break it down and we see that, you know, the environment's really serving as a barrier or uh, their physical uh, deficits, you know, like weakness and pain are really causing issues or uh, maybe it's their cognition um, and really just a lack of comprehension that's kind of limiting their performance. Um, And, you know, there can be a whole host 
host of barriers or uh, factors that really serve to support patients. Um, and I really think that OT is very good at kind of solving mostly all of those, um, you know, in a very holistic sense. That's great. I like that quick and dirty definition. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. So since this is a podcast geared to primarily towards speech-language pathologists, what are some occupational therapy strategies that SLPs can utilize in therapy? Um, I would say sensory integration techniques. Uh, you know, that's kind of the hallmark of OT within pediatrics. Um, and, and, you know, it's one of the modalities that I guess we're most well known for. Um, so I would say that sensory integration is definitely something that SLPs could use um, with any population you're working with. So, you know, if you have a child uh, who's really just not able to pay attention, it seems like they have a lot of energy to get out, or uh, it seems like they're defensive towards certain things, um, that could definitely point to some sensory issues or you know, even if they don't have, uh, you know, true sensory issues, they can still benefit from some sensory input. Uh, so providing proprioception, so kind of helping to calm and regulate their systems. Um, so having them do any kind of weight-bearing activity, so having them pick up things in their environment and lift them around a little bit, um, doing a couple wall push-ups, doing a couple jumping jacks, um, and even other kinds of sensory input, like I'm a really big fan of, of the homemade sensory bins where you just have dried rice or dried beans. Um, and you just kind of dig your hands in there and you hide little thing, uh, little items like small Legos, little action figures, and you have the kid kind of do a, a mini scavenger hunt, um, you know, kind of keeping them calm and regulated while kind of helping them focus on something that's fun and incentivizing. Um, so I feel like things like that for kids are really good. Um, but even if you're working with adults, possibly a stroke population or uh, individuals with traumatic brain injury, um, really just paying attention to those sensory strategies, focusing on deep breathing, um, focusing on light exercise can definitely serve as a sensory strategy, even for adults. Um, you know, a guided imagery and visualization can help uh, the sensory input of, you know, either uh, a video in front of them um, or the music uh, as part of a script or you know even just the words if you have a very soothing voice guiding them through it uh, that can definitely serve to uh, you know calm and regulate their system and kind of help them get back to uh, the, the rest of the session. Those are great suggestions. So what about children who are maybe like hypo sensitive or they're just, you know, they're like very calm or lethargic. What type of activities would you use for that type of child? Yeah, for them, a lot of proprioception would really help. So really alerting activities. So proprioception helps our body understand where it is in space. And a lot of times when you see kids who have low energy, low muscle tone, uh, just low everything, it seems proprioception definitely helps to that's it, that's the beauty about that sense. It helps to alert. So so bring the energy levels up of the kids that are kind of, you know, hypo aware and hyposensitive. And it also brings down the kids that are um, kind of hypersensitive or, or uh, defensive, things like that. 
Um, so proprioception, so things like, um, you know, jumping jacks, like I was mentioning, uh, wall push-ups. One of my favorite things to do um, is an alpha, with kids is an alphabet exercise. So you kind of go through the letters, you have them pick out the alphabet. So, you know, there's the cognitive component and, you know, the recognition and articulation component that you can incorporate in with, with the letters. Um, but each letter also stands for a different exercise. So, you know, you're getting the child up and moving around while also kind of working on some of those more formative skills. I love that. And then did you say on the opposite spectrum, like what we, what type of calming strategies you would use for someone who's like hypersensitive? Right. Uh, so I mentioned proprioception because, you know, that's a really good catch-all. Um, but even some vestibular input, uh, if a child, you know, you have to be careful with the vestibular input because you really don't know how children react sometimes. But if, you know, you get reports from parents that, you know, they love jumping and crashing and swinging and things like that, um, you know, using a swing is, is really helpful during therapy. Uh, you know, slow front and back swinging is helpful. Um, and you can also, you could use a swing or you can even use a swivel chair. Um, children who are a little bit too alerted will usually find the, the back and forth swinging more calming. Um, children who are a little, you know, under responsive, low energy, things like that. A lot of times they will find circular swinging um, to be alerting and, you know, a, a good energy booster. Um, but again, that's something you want to kind of add in there uh, in moderation and, you know, according to the child's tolerance. Thank you for breaking that down and like, forgive my ignorance, but I just was like looking at both sides of the spectrum and wanted to be able to introduce strategies that would fit both ends. So I really appreciate you sharing those. Right. Oh, it's, it's, it's not ignorance at all. I mean, it's really important for clinicians of, of all backgrounds to know these basic strategies because they can really help with sessions. Yeah, absolutely. I know from like firsthand experience working in a private practice clinic when I was able to collaborate with the occupational therapists who were there and utilize some of the strategies that they were using with my kiddos who exhibited behaviors during our speech therapy sessions, I noticed a huge difference in participation after we utilize some of those strategies. So it's really important. Yeah, definitely. So what is health literacy and why is it important? Um, health literacy is another one of one of my passions in addition to teletherapy. Um, it kind of segued from health writing. Um, and then I, I started learning about health literacy more and, and the importance of it. Um, so health literacy, I guess, in, in layman's terms is really the ability to seek out organize and use appropriate health related information, uh, which if we think about it as therapists from really any lens. Health literacy is huge and it's everywhere we turn. Um, it's a really formative skill for all patients. And it's really important, especially nowadays with all um, you know, COVID related things and there's so much misinformation out there that it's really important to make sure that patients know where to get reliable information, what to do with it, and you know, how, they, how that impacts the choices they make uh, you know, throughout their life. Absolutely. So what are your suggestions? Like where should people be seeking out this information or where should clinicians be getting it to share? Uh, some of my favorite websites are really government resources. So anything.gov uh, and most of the time.edu 
is, is really going to be helpful, reliable, um, and it's going to have sources to back it up. So uh, anything from like the CDC or the WHO, the World Health Organization. I, I find a lot of things about disease-specific information from, you know, the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, the American Red Cross, arthritis.org is the arthritis foundation so you know there's a lot of foundations also out there that really cater to specific diagnoses um, and, and you know those are a good option for patients who are seeking specific information but also clinicians uh, you know they can incorporate that education uh, into all of their sessions which I'm a huge advocate for therapists being educators first and foremost um, so I think therapists should equally be looking to reliable uh, sources as, as much as patients should because you know we're the experts and we really have to demonstrate our worth through reliable and credible sources. Absolutely. So what is the difference between like health literacy and looking at like research articles? Um, so research articles can definitely help patients uh, but I mean sometimes even therapists look at research articles and we're just you know, our jaw kind of drops, like, how do I break this down into, you know, something that's comprehensible. Um, so it's important for us to kind of scan some of that, uh, you know, heavier information from reliable sources to make sure we can break it down and, you know, either put it into patient handouts, uh, you know, in bulleted form or just in, in easier terminology, um, or just really kind of break it down and, and, give to patients straight out, um, you know, we have to be able to give them that, that quick little abstract in layman's terms for it to be of any use to them. I mean, patients can definitely see worth from a research article, but only if, you know, we give them the means to do so. No, I completely agree with you. And that's a really good point. And it shows like a huge gap, I think, in the literature. But we already know that research typically is very like structured and it's sometimes it's hard to generalize that to a typical like setting. Um, so I could see where health literacy comes in and I'm sure a lot of those cite, you know, research articles, but I think this is really important for clinicians to be listening to and to consider because yes, we are very evidence-based um, focused. We should be. However, right. Those research articles and the, um, information that comes from them is not always like transferable to the patient, right? Right, absolutely. I mean, you know, they're they're chock full of figures most of the time, and and really complex terminology. Um, you know, not to mention research articles are intended to be lengthy. They're intended to cover everything in in you know excessive detail. So it's really our job to break that down for the patient. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate you sharing credible resources that clinicians can look to, um, because I think sometimes we forget about those. We're so focused on, well, what does this research study say? Was it a, a systematic review? We're looking for things like that, but that's for us. So then we also need to take that a step further and look at some of the resources like you were describing, like WHO and CDC and being able to share like those resources as well. Right, definitely, because they do a good job of breaking it down, uh, but still sometimes it's it's still a little bit too complex for patients. So, you know, I find that a lot of times health literacy can really be incorporated into our training, you know, as a sort of cognitive rehab, you know, getting patients to, um, you know, initiate the ability to seek out this information, to advocate for themselves, 
and to increase their learning potential. Uh, you know, health literacy, I think, can really be peppered into every aspect of treatment. Absolutely. Great. Well, I know that you have done a lot of things and you're working on a lot of things. You've written, helped to write textbooks, um, but you also recently wrote a children's book called Why Is There a Person in My Computer? So what is it about? Yes, uh, it was, it was, it kind of came out of the idea, uh, you know, from me working in teletherapy for the past several years. Um, I really wanted a guide to explain teletherapy to children. Um, you know, there might be a day when you know, kids only know therapy through the computer and it's, you know, intuitive and kids just understand it and they jump right in. Um, but until then, we're kind of in, in uncharted territory where there's a lot of kids transitioning over, um, you know, a lot of kids with disabilities who really might not understand the idea of having a person in the computer talking to them, guiding them through things. Um, so the, the idea for the book kind of came around as, you know, a way to educate kids what teletherapy is, how it can help them, um, and, you know, really educating them that it's not all that different from in-person therapy. You know, you still get to play games and interact with your therapist and, you know, maybe even uh, play with some other friends and, you know, kind of do a group session. Um, so teletherapy is really not anything to be scared of or uh, intimidated by. So that was the idea behind the book. I love that. So Again, this isn't an SLP related podcast, but I'm curious what occupational therapy looks like in telehealth because there might be some tips that we could be using in speech therapy as well. Right. Um, for OT, I really like to use what's around. Um, so I know, I know with kids, a lot of times, you know, you have to use certain toys and, you know, bright colors and noises and things like that to keep them uh, you know, motivated and really engaged. But sometimes I really like to just improvise with what's around, you know, even if that's just like office equipment or kitchen equipment or something like that. Um, I'm a big fan of like grabbing a colander from the kitchen and taking um, anything really, either rolled up paper or pipe cleaners or something like that and just having kids stick them through the holes and push them all the way through. It's a really good fine motor activity. It's it makes a funny noise when it goes in. So it's kind of motivating. And um, I'm a big fan of doing things like that. And in addition to uh, obstacle courses, you know, you, you align things in a certain way, you, you guide the child to make the obstacle course for themselves, essentially, you know, having them pick up and put things down, which is a really good motor planning task, and then kind of having them go through that uh, obstacle course as, as a really good gross motor task. Um, and you know, you can put music on, you can make it fun. You can do a dance in the middle of it. You can have them do animal walks through it. Um, so there, there's really a lot of fun ways that you can kind of work with what you have. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of believe that that's the joy of teletherapy. That's why I enjoy it so much. You know, you, you definitely plan sessions out and, you know, have an idea when you're going into therapy, but a lot of it is like regular therapy where, you know, you sometimes have to think on your feet and, and be adaptive about using what's around you to really make the kids succeed. Yeah. Do you find that you're, you're having to do a lot of parent coaching is a, you know, another adult there when you're doing the teletherapy or does it just depend on the child? Um, yeah, it definitely depends on the kid. Um, I, I do have to do a lot of parent coaching because I think that's one of the highlights of teletherapy is that, you know, you can't do hand over hand. You can't give those physical cues like you would in the school. Um, so, you know, you have to kind of coach the parents to give some hand over hand assistance when, uh, when it's needed. 
Um, and yeah, definitely having some sort of parent is helpful for certain kids. Uh, but I have certain kids who, you know, really just surprise me. Like they get in front of the computer, they do everything you ask. They're really motivated, they're engaged and there's really no issues. And, you know, sometimes you're grateful enough to have no tech issues either. <laughs> Um, but yeah, having, having parents there can definitely help with some of the lower functioning kiddos, especially the ones who, um, aren't really very verbal, um, you know, and, and kids who are very distractible. So you have the parents kind of make sure they stay in front of the computer. Um, but, you know, using different strategies, like I was talking about earlier, sensory strategies and, um, some gross motor to kind of get them involved. It really kind of helps get the jitters out that, um, you know, which might impact a teletherapy session in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yep. What platform are you using for telehealth? Um, I pretty consistently use Zoom. Uh, I really find the the features are parent and child friendly. Um, you know, it's worked really well with me for as long as I can remember, but um, I know there's a lot of great ones out there, but I just so happen to stick with Zoom for the most part. Yeah. Okay, cool. How do you encourage peer interactions to develop into friendships among AAC users? Many people with disabilities have limited opportunities to take part in activities where they can actually meet peers. Relationships between children with and without disabilities are not formed by simply grouping them together. Speech-language pathologists can play an important role in facilitating peer interactions between children who use AAC and their peers. If you want to learn practical ways to support peer interactions among children who use AAC, then you don't want to miss this ASHA-accredited pod course with Dr. Michelle Therian. Join Tassel Continuing Education to get early access to all pod courses and earn ASHA CEUs. You can listen to this course starting on October 1st, 2020, before it's even available on this podcast. Friendships are crucial for AAC users to develop a sense of belonging, boost self-confidence, and even increase academic performance. Help your AAC users make friends by listening to this pod course, which provides tangible tips you can start implementing right away. Head to tasseltogether.com or click on the link in this episode description. Then check out the courses tab to find the course titled, You've Got a Friend in AAC, Supporting Social Interactions with AAC Users to Learn More. Before we wrap up, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about, to share about that we didn't get to discuss? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Well, this has been really helpful. I feel like you're my very first occupational therapist, so this is really exciting. Thank you for coming. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> where can everyone find and connect with you, and where can they find your book? Uh, yeah, my book is available on Amazon, uh, both ebook and paperback format, so um, it's also, I forgot to mention earlier, it's got a bunch of parent tips in there. Uh, so parents and caregivers could kind of learn about teletherapy and uh, educate themselves on how they can help kids with the transition. Um, so yeah, that, that's available on Amazon. Um, and people can contact me through LinkedIn. I'm, I'm very easy to find there and I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, they can also visit my website, www.simplicityofhealth.com. Um, it describes all my services, um, you know, a list of all my writing work, consulting work, and kind of everything I've done is there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. This has been such a pleasure. And until next time. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs>